This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Conditional love really is in each of us. It's part of our deep inner being. Valeria Tellez interviews T.J. Bartel, the author of Soldier of Love, an evolutionary blueprint for thriving in times of chaos. T.J. Bartel is a relationship expert, life coach, and couples coach with a very unique approach to conscious sexuality that integrates modern neuroscience, cutting-edge personal growth techniques, and ancient tantric and Taoist wisdom. After earning a bachelor's degree in psychology at San Diego State University, TJ graduated at the top of his class at Tony Robbins Mastery University. He trained with Charles Muir, the grandfather of the modern Tantra movement, becoming an advanced certified Tantric educator and taught with him at Source School of Tantra Yoga for 15 years. He also studied Tantra with Margot Anand, Taoism with Montak Chia and Chin Nai Sang at Gills Marine. TJ is dedicated to bringing about a change in our communities and culture by offering seven steps to guide love-based teachers and entrepreneurs who want to make a great living while making a real difference in the world. Meet TJ at tjbartell.com. Here is the interview with TJ Bartell. In your own words, who is T.J. Bartel? You know, I am a person who is dedicated to making the world a better place by spreading as much love and joy and laughter as possible. I do that through education and uh, by being an example of what's possible. I, I write books and articles and blogs and I teach workshops not so much in person right now during the COVID times, yeah. quarantine while, but I'm still doing it online. And it's been about 20 years since I've had this purpose and been working diligently at finding the most effective and powerful and enjoyable ways of doing it. When, how do we know when we have found our purpose today? It's for me, it came to me like a ton of bricks. And then when it, when the message came to me, I also had memories of other times it tried to come to me and I didn't quite get it. And this particular time, 
uh, was in the late 90s. And I, I've been a Tony Robbins follower since 1981. So, you know, we went to my first Tony Robbins seminar, um, you know, when I was when I just graduated high school. And uh, I re-engaged in his his work several different times over my adult life. And this particular time, I was I was driven to figure out more about what I'm supposed to be doing. And so at Date with Destiny, uh, it's a workshop that he teaches, which is how you find your mission statement. And he does a guided meditation. There's about four or 5,000 of us jumping up and down and dancing and high-fiving and getting the energy really high while he's you know, neural associative conditioning, he's, he's bringing messages in. So when you're in a peak state, he would say things like, everybody has their own unique mission. Everything happens for a purpose and a reason that serves you. If you're paying attention and asking the right questions and yay, everybody, you know, dances and cheers. Mm-hmm. At some point, he has everybody sit down and meditate and he turns the lights off and he does a, a guided meditation saying the same stuff. And then when he turns the lights on, we're instructed to pick, pick up our pen and paper and just put it, the pin down and see what comes out. And to, to really notice while it's coming out what emotions and feelings are being evoked in you. And, uh, you know, at the time I was, you know, I've always been somebody who's really, you know, talked about being loving and, but, you know, to be honest, I, I came from a very rough world and, uh, I was very shocked to find out what my mission was. It wasn't what I expected. It, and it was, as I said, you know, very specific. And it just came out of me. And it was almost orgasmic, like full body orgasm. It was, it was, it was just something I hadn't experienced before. And it was, you know, I am here to save the world by spreading massive amounts of love and joy to as many people as humanly possible. And then he says, write something else. You know, anything you can think of and see how you feel, pay attention. And, you know, I wrote several different things and I felt nothing. And he says, now write that again. And I wrote it again. And I had this huge uh, inner response, as well as memories of times when I was a child, when I had similar experiences, um, you know, which the experiences, it sounds kind of crazy. I wouldn't have believed it if it wasn't, you know, what I experienced. But it happened to me once before when I was about five years old, Um It was a vision of a a woman, what I know now as a goddess, 10 feet tall, who was floating behind me and shrunk down to to about my size and was in full lotus position and blew in my ear. And and even though all I heard was the message I heard beneath that was, I have a very special mission for you. And it happened to me during a time where I had decided that I hated my life and I hated my parents and and I hated my neighborhood and hated everything and didn't want to live anymore. And I was five years old, four or five, somewhere in there. And so that same experience happened during the meditation. The same woman, same experience, same size, same shape. She did the same thing. She blew in my ear and I heard the same mission. And then when he turned the lights on, that's what came out. And uh, I felt that she was there feeling proud that I finally got the message. So kind of bizarre. <laughs> Sounds a little bit hippy dippy for where I came from, but that did happen. And so since then, I, I was asking the question: Okay, what does that look like? What does that mean? How am I supposed to do that? And how am I supposed to make a living doing that? And at the time, I had a, a very successful construction company specializing in automation, gates, doors, garage doors, things like that. 
And I gave that company to my son and I gave my house to him. I gave away pretty much everything I owned and dedicated my life to this work. When you say inner responses, do you connect that to the soul's journey and somehow spiritual knowing? Yes, I do. I I believe that we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And one of the first gurus who I paid attention to, actually back in the 70s, Sai Kuli Baba, he, he wrote that our souls are the size um, they're subatomic, they're so small. But if you took a hair follicle, not a strand of hair, but a hair follicle off of your arm, and you chopped it into a thousand pieces, you would see the size of our soul. But that spark of light is billions of times stronger than any computer that can ever be created by man. And it stores all the information about this lifetime and all our past lifetimes. And it's based on how we interpret that information and how we respond to it, whether we get on the path that we're meant to be on or not. What is your idea or understanding of spirituality these days? Do you somehow connect spirituality to religion? Yes, I, I actually do. Um, I, I think religion is lost in a lot of ways. I think it's become a way to make money and to control people. You know, the best thing I see out of religion is when you drive by a church and it says God is love. Because mm. to me, worshiping a deity or worshiping uh, Jesus or Buddha or Allah, it's fine as, as long as you really understand what it means. And to me, rather than asking what Jesus would do, because Jesus lives in a very different time than we do, and Jesus was, you know, to turn the other cheek. And I tried doing that as a child. I grew up in, in areas where, you know, turning the other cheek would just get me beat up even more. So eventually I started fighting back. And um, we were never a religious family, but my mother did have a picture of Jesus and a statue of Buddha in the houses that we grew up. I say houses because we moved a lot. So to me, it's it's about love. Spirituality doesn't have the same restrictions as religion, which is if you don't believe in religion the way I do, you're wrong. And if you don't believe in religion that the way I do, you're going to hell or you're gonna your soul's destined for eternal suffering or whatever it is. And I believe that in spirituality, we're able to say it's more about It's not about, you know, paying money to a church or believing what people tell you. It's about how you feel and how you behave and what kind of feelings and emotions and empowerment you can evoke and invoke in yourself and others. So to me, it's, you know, every spiritual decision is an opportunity to choose love over fear. And my belief is that there's really not a heaven and hell or a devil and and a God in, in the way that the Bible depicts, but there are two major vibrations. And I break, I break everything down into the energetic form, which is almost an oversimplification, but it's how I see things. Um, fear is the lowest, most dense, most problematic vibration on the earth. And love is the exact opposite. Love is the highest vibration and it evokes health and happiness in our bodies. When we're vibrating in love, it's scientifically proven now that our our glands in our body, our master gland, there's you know we have millions upon millions of glands in our body, and they respond, and um, they they get healthier and more vibrant, and we have more energy, and we're open minded, and we get you know oxytocin and dopamine and phenylethylamine and serotonin, and all these feel good biochemicals fill up our body, and that makes us more likely to be kind to ourselves and others, and to make decisions based on our heart. 
And when we're in fear, we make decisions based on fear and we have the opposite response in our body. We become unhealthy. And usually when we become unhealthy or out of balance, we look for something or someone to blame. It's either ourselves, parents, or our husband, or our wife, or our boyfriend, or our sister, or brother, or the, whoever the president of the United States is, or wherever <laughs> we live. In, in the spiritual realm and the energetic practices, I say drop the stories and move the energy. Get yourself back into the proper state and to avoid fear-based decisions and fear-based uh, systems like religion, for example. If, if, if it's a religion, not you know, Hindi is not a religion that does that. So if I had to be religious, I would, I would probably, you know, go for Hindi, be, Hinduism, because there's not so much judgment and, and anger and blame or fear. They're not saying if you don't follow these steps, you're going to burn in hell and you're going to be horrible. And, you know, so that's where I, where I think it's problematic in religion is where people say, I have to behave because otherwise I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to disappoint God da, 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 da. instead of. I have to behave in a way that makes my life better and the, the lives of other people around me and in the world better. I love your wisdom and I love what you said. Ah, I just wrote it down here. Drop the stories and move the energies. How wonderful. And energy is like water. You know, if it's stagnant, it can it can lose its power. You know, it can't be destroyed or uh, created, but it can lose its power. It can get smaller or it can gain power and get bigger. And when it, it can get stagnant and, and like water, it can become toxic. So when people don't breathe deeply, when people don't exercise, their energy gets stagnant and they, they start having health issues, uh, relationship dysfunctions and all kinds of things. And, and they look for the reasons and the excuses when really all they need to do sometimes is breathe or meditate or run or jump or make love or do something that gets the heart pumping and then shift, make a shift from whatever they're focusing on. You know, Tony Robbins will say, you know, it's focus physiology and language is, is the triad, the triangle that, that determines your health or happiness in the moment. So what are you focusing on? What is your physio physiology like and what kind of language are you using? You know, if you're inner critic is beating you up, calling you stupid or, you know, doing that to, to other people, then you're in the past based on triggers. And to me, the antidote for being in pattern, for being angry, for being triggered is presence. Because in the present moment, when we're fully present, we're not tripping out about what might happen in the future or what happened in the past. But, you know, most people aren't present very often. There's a lot of scientific experiments, and, and the one that I've seen the most states that the average human being is only present a small percentage of the time, that 94 to 99% of the time, we're either thinking about the past or the future. That's, that's really bad. Do you believe that it's possible to stay present at all times, or this is also a dance of energy moving in and out of balance? I think it's possible if we were able to use more of our brain than we use. I think we use about 5% of our brain's mm -hmm. capacity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're the second highest user of our brain in the universe as far as I know. I don't know what might be out of Earth, but on Earth, the dolphins use about twice as much of their brain capacity as humans. And we use far more of our brain capacity than the other animals. But we're not using enough. So... I think that that could change it. But also, I think if the systems of the world were different, then we could spend more time in the present. I believe that people in the past 
before there was social media and before there was politics and before there was uh, so much judgment that people spent a lot more time in, in the present. But now, you know, like I said about religion, school does the same thing. You know, when you get to school as a child, they're teaching you to compete. You know, you got to get the A. If you don't, you fail. You're either a winner or a loser. And then you got the other kids who pick on each other and make fun of each other and talk about how they look and how they dress and whether they're fat or skinny or whatever. I went to schools, you know, I went to seven different schools before I went to high school, seven different schools before I went to my last year of junior high even. And I was almost always the only kid that looked like I do with blonde hair and blue eyes. So I got made fun of a lot. I got picked on a lot. One of the reasons I wound up being who I am. But the point is that if the schools had a different agenda, rather than teaching people how to react to a bell and respond to authority and uh, compete with each other and judge everything, if, if the focus was how do we make these children healthy, happy, productive members of society who are high functioning, yeah. then we would have a completely different curriculum and, and the teachers would behave completely differently. And this is true in, in just about every school system that I've seen. Some have a little bit better. But if it was different, yeah, I believe we could spend more time in the present. You know, we wouldn't worry so much. But there's people who, oh, I can't believe I got a B on that, you know, two years ago. And now I'm not going to be able to get into the college I want. And then they go through that year over and over again. And so many people get traumatized, you know, and they're literally millions, if not billions of moments in our lifetimes that we can choose on. Uh, but there's one moment sometimes that somebody gets stuck in. It's like a, a thousand open windows in your computer and they can't get past it until they learn how to close those windows and move on from the past to, to make sense of that, to take the power out of it, you know, not lose the memory, but take the charge out of that memory. And when somebody does enough of that, they're able to spend more time in the present. What do you think, TJ, are some of the greatest misconceptions about love? That I believe the greatest misconceptions are, number one, that it's something that can be given and taken away. And it's not. I believe that we're all supposed to be madly in love with each other. And if we, we meet somebody or we interact with somebody whose behaviors aren't conducive to the kind of uh, relationship we want, that we can adjust and redefine the nature of that relationship and the association. For example, I have seven sisters, and not all of them are people who have the same beliefs as me. I, all lo I love them all equally, but the sisters who are more like me in a lot of ways are the ones I enjoy spending time with. And I have lots and lots of friends and clients and students like that. You know, I can still help them, I can still love them, but if they talk negatively about people all the time, if, if they don't listen, if they're hard to get along with, if they've got a lot of drama and they're always, you know, pushing boundaries and stuff like that, I choose not to surround myself with them. But that doesn't mean I take my love away. And, and that's, I think, one of the big problems here is I used to love you and I don't love you anymore. For me, I've been in love with a lot of women and, and in a romantic way. And that's different than the kind of love we feel when it's platonic. But... So the love doesn't change, but the romance level will shift, if you know what I mean. So I still love my ex-wife. We got divorced in 1988. She gave me the greatest gift of my life, which is my son, who gave me the next greatest gift of my mm -hmm. life, which is my granddaughter. Mm -hmm. And 
I will always cherish her and, and honor her and love her for that. And I have the same positive feelings I had for her, probably even more than when we were together because we really didn't get along. Um, but I, I believe that people who take the love away and they vilify that person, they're doing so to justify something They're you know, which is what's happening in politics in America right now. Right. It's if people don't believe the way that, we believe they must be bad. They must be villains. They must be vilified. And this is how people break up with each other, how people leave jobs and friendships. It's okay. Now that we don't see eye to eye, that person is, uh, you know, being called all kinds of names. And every time that person's name comes up, it evokes a, a, a negative biochemical and energetic response in that person's body. And that's all unnecessary suffering. And this is one of the biggest challenges right now, I believe we're having in America is that too many people hate each other. Right. It's us against them. And that's not how it's supposed to be. I don't even believe we should have a, a two party system. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it should be, you vote on your, uh, what you want and what you like and whoever wins the most votes wins, but it shouldn't be Democrat and Republican because, right. you know, right. and I heard this growing up, you know, like I grew up around a lot of gangsters and bikers and, and all those, those gay ass granola crunching tree huggers and blah, 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 blah. Well, that, that would be where I would fall into the category now. I am definitely somebody who loves trees and, and health food and yoga and things like that. But, you know, if I would have been around my cousins, you know, back in those days, you know, they would have thought I was some kind of fruitcake, you know. And so I grew up with that. But then on the other end, I had sisters who were hippies. You know, I was born in 1963 and, you know, a whole new wave of, of freedom and and peace movements were, were coming about. So I, I got to see both sides and you know, people who were saying, well, those people who don't want to help anybody else, who are surrounded by racist slogans and, and Confederate flags are the, the bad guys. I still believe that the Confederate flag, people who, who, who are flying that, I believe that they're, they're in the wrong because I believe that flag represents something so horrible. So, but you know, I know people who do it. And I've got Republicans in my in my circle and in my family. And I say, okay, I still love them, but I'm not going to have a political conversation unless they're asking me questions and they really want to learn, because otherwise you're just beating your head against the wall, right? What do you think is the purpose of the human experience, TJ? I think the, perf- the purpose alters from person to person slightly. But if I had to generalize, I would say it is to become the best possible versions of ourselves, mm, yeah. uh, to become self-realized, uh, enlightened, which I don't believe is a process that finishes. It's, it's like staying healthy, eating right, exercising, um, self-realization, self-mastery is getting to know yourself, your triggers, the things that upset you and the things that don't, and working the things out that upset you so that you don't spend all your time upset. So you can spend as much time as humanly possible vibrating in the energy of love. What is the meaning of freedom to you? What is to be free? That's a great question. I've had this conversation many times. To me, freedom is is true freedom, is having the ability to make your own decisions based on your body's measurements. I believe that there's two kinds of referencing. There's other referencing, which is I should do this because the religion says I should, or God says I should, or Jesus, or my wife, or my friends, or people on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever. Um, And then there's self-referencing, which is measured. 
for example, uh, I don't really drink, but every once in a great while, I'll have a glass of wine or, you know, uh, a, a glass of bourbon, like, you know, once a few times a year if there's something. But the reason I don't do it very often is because I measure it. Somebody will say, hey, would you like a beer? And I'll measure with my body. Does my body want a beer right now? And almost always it says no. I'd rather have a glass of water. And so I'm, I'm not folding to peer pressure or am I going to look like a sissy if I don't have a, a shot of, uh, you know, whiskey with these guys or I don't have a single malt scotch drink with these. No, I don't care about that. Uh, I measure with my body. So having uh, that ability gives us freedom, freedom from being convinced that we should behave a certain way or look a certain way based on what other people think. And then being free enough to be our authentic self. And I think once we figure out who our authentic self is, we need to nurture our authentic self because not too many people ever find it. And and to me, that's true freedom. And And being able to go where you want and do what you want and buy what you want is also another uh, extended aspect of true freedom. It, not having to to adhere to anyone else's strict guidelines and rules for what makes you a good person or a happy person, but only basing it on what your true heart's desires are. And also, you know, that doesn't mean that being selfish and not considering what is going on with everybody else, because if you're uh, really a conscious being, you care about how you influence the people in your life as well as uh, how well you take care of yourself. That is um, something that takes, I don't know if it's courage, it has a different level of authenticity. If you know what I mean, TJ, this idea of having commitments, let's say being married or being committed to whatever it is, and now changing your mind, <laughs> or oh, the body doesn't feel like doing that anymore. What is the call there? If it is courage, uh, going deeper within, not sure. Courage is definitely necessary. And and the biggest thing, you know, I I notice a lot of people get married and then they cheat on each other. Yeah. You know, over 50% of first marriages in America end up in divorce. And every marriage after that is even more likely to fail. And the reason is because... People don't know how to be in a relationship. They weren't taught that in school. They were taught how to analyze and pick each other apart and to compete with each other. They weren't taught how to communicate consciously. If people can truly communicate consciously, um, then they have the ability to, to be fearless but loving in their conversations so that they can articulate their desires and get their needs met in a way that's energetically efficient. And most people, this is another Tony Robbins-ism, uh, most people spend 95% of their time and energy on the reason of the conflict in their mind, trying to prove their point and to make the other person believe that they're right. So trying to force their reality on somebody and only 5% on the solution. So he taught me to flip the script. You know, it's been 5% describing the problem. So I've actually created a, a whole form of communication around this that I call conscious communication, which is, you know, you don't try to convince each other of anything. You just express yourself consciously from a place of love without blame, without accusations, and um, committed to, to personal responsibility, meaning that we take responsibility for our part. And often when I, when I coach couples, I'll say, look, there's... 
there's three sides to every story. There's yours, there's yours, and there's the truth. And the fact of the matter is, we're wrong more often than we're right. You know, if a camera followed us around in our lives and our relationships, 80% of the time we would say, well, I thought I said that. I was so sure. And and I'll give you a real quick uh, reference for that. There's a, a TV show called Brain Games. And I watched it, you know, when it first came out. And there's an episode where there's several episodes where they do this. There's one particular episode uh, where they show that they did a ton of studies. And in the studies, what they do is they, they ask for a study group. They request intelligent uh, people who believe that they know how to pay attention to do this experiment. So it's 30 or 50 people, whatever it is. And then they have them show up and they, and they have a magician stand in front of them. And they say, okay, pay very careful attention to what the magician does so that you can tell us what trick he did and how he did it. But as soon as the magician starts and everybody's got their thinking caps on, everybody's paying careful attention, which is not usually the case. And then the magician turns around and there's a staged crime behind him. He moves out of the way and he watches with everybody. They think it's a real crime. And afterwards, they take him to a fake police station, a staged place where there's a, a wall and a two-way mirror. So you, the people inside there can't see them, but they can see them. And then they get everybody's statements and they ask how sure they are. 100% of the people are 100% sure of what they saw. But no matter what city they do this in, 80, when they watch the video, 80% of the time they're all wrong. And, and people cry. They go, how to put that guy in jail for the rest of his life? I can't believe I feel so wrong. But that's this human nature. We, we don't pay enough attention. We start interpreting things based on our skewed lens. And then we make up our own reality. And then we say, that's what happened. And you better believe me. How can you not believe me? And then if two people are doing that, you know, they're, they're locked. They're, they're in gridlock. They have to get rid of that. And it does take courage to try to do something new. So when I, when I do these practices with people, they don't always follow them, but when they do, it can completely transform their relationships and allow them to really get their needs met without having to fight about it. And I know you mentioned in your book under developing discipline, you have the 12 blocks to listening which listening is a huge component of communication, right? And what an, an interesting and important message, uh, this idea of not imposing our reality in others and trying to make them believe what we believe. So you wrote the book, Soldier of Love, an evolutionary blueprint for thriving in times of chaos. Two questions. How did you become a writer and what was the inspiration, intention, and purpose of writing this book, TJ? You know, ever since I was about 18, people have been telling me, you should write a book because I, I've had a crazy life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the best things that you can imagine happening to a man have happened to me and some of the worst things. And it's, it's been a very exciting journey, but I always thought, you know, I'm not a writer. I don't, I didn't have the, the patience to sit down and write. I was doing things all the time. And then one time I was on the staff, a volunteer staff with Tony Robbins after I got my mission statement. And, um, there was a, a football hero of mine who sat next to me on a plane and I, I didn't even know it was him. He's, he's called the refrigerator Perry. He's this giant guy, you know, um, 
he was a, a, a lineman, defensive lineman, I believe, who picked up a fumble once and ran it back. And so they started using him as a running back and he became this huge football celebrity. And so I was reading a Tantra book. I was reading Charles Mears' book. Probably for the 10th time I had that book memorized, the Tantra, the Art of Conscious Loving and uh, other books. And he sat next to me on a plane and said, it's time for you to put that book away and write your own. And he was about the 10th person that said that. And I was just kind of like, yeah, yeah, go away, kid, you bother me. I wasn't paying any attention to who he was, really. I was like, okay. And he's like, hey, are you like Tony Robbins, I bet? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, I didn't like Tony Robbins, but better. I taught deep. And then we started getting along. And then when the plane ride was over, he handed me his card. And I'm like, holy shit, you're the fridge? He's like, yep, that's me. I'm the fridge. And I was like, you know what? If the fridge tells me to write a book, I'm going to write a book. <laughs> yeah. And so I started writing a book. But I didn't know how to write. I'm a, I'm a great creative writer. You know, but I, I didn't know how to really put it in format. So I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I have, I have, you know, dozens and dozens of notebooks with different book ideas and, and chapters and all these things, but I hadn't put it together yet. Um, I finally did. I took a class that kind of got me on the roll and, uh, started becoming a writer and, and my specialty for whatever reason, and I wasn't sure why this was the case, but, uh, when I started asking, okay, how am I supposed to save the world by spreading love and joy and in this way? I would be asking that question and I'd meet somebody and I would follow the, the path. So that path led me to Tantra where I became a Tantra master and I became the guy who was known to be able to help any woman become orgasmic. No matter what her trauma was, no matter how old she was, they would come from all over the world and I would do sessions with them and they would go from having pain and numbness to having pleasure. And so that's what I did for, you know, 16 years. I did way more sessions than was actually good for me. I wound up in the hospital a couple of times. I just had some more work than I could do and, and that's what I did. And so I was writing The Great Lover Blueprint and I have, you know, like 10 of these books I'm writing. But um, my new publisher actually told me you know, we had this meeting when when the world really got crazy, when COVID was in place and people were fighting. And I don't know when this was, uh, March or April or so, I don't know what, you know, but it was last year. And uh, they said, look, we, we know that you know that stuff, you know, and, and yeah, the world needs that. But the world needs you right now to do something different. The world needs you to share some of the other things you know that aren't necessarily sexual, but how to survive right now and, and, and how to, how to get through these crazy times where there's so much hate and so much judgment and people are locked down and, and miserable and, and, you know, domestic violence is through the roof because people were stuck in the houses with each other and people are abusing their children and, you know, all kinds of crazy shit is going on and we need you to do something different. So I came up with the idea of this book and wrote it because of that request. You have the seven qualities listed there of a soldier of love. Uh, so I have them in front of me here. Would you like to go through them, TJ, briefly and um, perhaps explore one of them? Sure. Uh, well, you know, the first one is cultivating presence. As, as I expressed earlier, to me, presence is the antidote for temper tantrums. It's the, the antidote for all triggers and patterns. You know, we all have different patterns we go into when we're upset, but they're based on fear and uh, they're often very destructive. So uh, cultivating presence, I, I have made meditations specifically to help people cultivate presence and to become energetically aware of, of their body and their energetic field around their body and how it works. Um, 
And so mastering energy is a part of that, you know, it goes right in from, from, you know, cultivating presence because once you realize how your energy body works and that you can influence your energy and the energy around you with your thoughts and actions and emotions, when you become more masterful with energy, it's easier to be present. And to me, energy is our most precious commodity. People will say time, they will say relationships, they will say money. But to me, I've worked with some billionaires. I've worked with some of the most famous people in the world. Uh, I've worked with people that are so poor, they're barely surviving. And the happiest people are the people who's, who are energetically aligned and not, and some of the most miserable people I've met have been people who have it all. They're, they're physically beautiful according to what any magazine would say. And they have all the money and fame, but their energy is, you know, stagnant or toxic. There's not enough of it. They're not grounded enough or they're, they're an energy frenetic. So getting the energy right uh, is so important because when we fully run out of energy, we die. You know, we start getting sick and then we die. Um, and you can see this if you look at x-ray machines, you know, food that's old, the field gets smaller around it. And I can see this with my own eyes now. I'm trained. I can see when somebody's field is getting smaller, when they're getting less healthy. But the thing is, is in order to, to, to really live a high quality of life, you also have to have balance. So number three is living in balance. And there are meditations and, and principles and practices to help us live in balance, meaning, you know, it's not all about work. It's not all about play. It's not all about money, but it's also not all about meditation. There has to be a great balance. And again, you can have all the things you want on a piece of paper, but if you don't follow through um, and if you don't have the ability to be disciplined, say, yeah, I was going to go to the gym last year, but the year went by or I was going to stop drinking or smoking or start eating healthy, but they don't have the discipline because they have the practices. So develop discipline will allow people to take these principles and practice and actually apply them to their life. And then people need to be clear about who they are and what they want to do. Clarity is power. So number five is creating clarity. And then six is acquiring skills, you know, the skills for communicating with yourself and others effectively and efficiently. And, you know, really probably most importantly is taking action because it doesn't matter what we know. If we don't put it into action, you know, we, we don't get anything done. And that's a very important one that sometimes we forget. <laughs> Yeah. And it should be, you know, that massive action, really. If somebody really wants a drastic change, then they have to put that word massive there. It means they have to you know, hit the ground running every single day. You know, if somebody just wants a small change, just taking action is, is sufficient. But for people who say, look, you know, I, I'm 100 pounds overweight, I'm miserable, I smoke, you know, massive action every single day. That's got to be your priority. And, and I have people put these on their mirror when they get up every morning, so it's the first thing they see on their refrigerator, when they're, you know, on, on their desk, so that they see these things and they do them. I love the quote you have from Rondas. It's on unconditional love. I have a lot of respect for him. I think he, he's no longer in a body, right, TJ? Right. Yeah, he, he passed last year, unfortunately. But um, I was fortunate enough to get to see him a few times before he died. You know, he doesn't just talk about love. He is love. I mean, he had stroke. He could barely move his body. He had to have a team of people taking care of him. But when you get in his field, you cannot help but feel love radiating from his face and his eyes. I mean, Ram Dass was a being who just evoked love so much 
that his life just got taken care of because of that. One day he said, you know, I want to live in a big house on a cliff in Maui until I die. Just talking to somebody and somebody heard him and said, you know, you deserve this. Let me buy it for you. He was love. So we used to go to that house you know, in Maui. And on Mondays, we would go to the beach and swim in the ocean. And he would you know, have this basically a rubber wheelchair, you know, because he couldn't really move very well. And uh, he couldn't walk or anything. So we would just chant. He would chant and we would follow him. And, and by the time you got out, you, you would feel so much love in your body and feel that it would, it would be there for weeks. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything in a different way? How soon? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Um, yeah, it's up to your imagination. I, absolutely. I would, I, would, I would spend more time with the people I love and uh, less time doing things like, you know, I spend a few hours a day on self-care. You know, yoga, meditation, I do voice practices, I work out, I listen to podcasts or not so much podcasts, but audiobooks. So sometimes I'll spend four hours a day on just taking care of myself. I would probably scratch that if I knew that I was going to be dead in a year and I would, I would spend more time with my granddaughter and my son. Uh, I would, I basically have to force myself because they're super busy. You know, I spend as much time with, with them as I can, but I would spend more time with the people I love and I would, I would write another book. Uh, I have several books in the, in the making, but I would write one uh, about my life. I would finish those books and I would write one about my life. And I would probably also increase my, uh, <laughs> my life insurance policy <laughs> to 10 times bigger. So that my, <laughs> More That's money. convenient to know, yeah. right? That, that we are yeah. dying. It's great. Absolutely. <laughs> Beautiful answer. <laughs> Last question is, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I know that life in this body or in these bodies that we have will end eventually. Right. I know that the more loving we are, that the higher our quality of life is. And I know that if we find our true, authentic self, and I, I believe that if everybody found their true, authentic selves and committed to answering the question, what would be the loving thing to do every time they made a decision, that there would be no wars, there would be no greed. So there wouldn't be so much toxicity in government and school and church and religion, people would be happier. Thank you so much, TJ, for your beautiful and authentic presence, your purpose, your work, your wisdom. Thank you. My pleasure. I do have one last question for you, but this is a technical one. Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? TJBartel.com is my website. Um, I also have a lot of free information on tjbartel.us. I have several free meditations on some of those sites, including um, Vimeo. I'll have those links on your podcast profile as well. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. It was really great talking to you. I hope to do it again sometime. Oh, yes. I will eventually have my podcast uh, going and I'll, and I'll like to interview you. That'll be fun. <laughs> Bye for now. 
Okay. Take care. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn more about TJ Bartell and his work, please visit tjbartell.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org/podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.